What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Some of the stories we're taking a look at this week, uh, Trump ordered uh, the Department of Justice to cut Roger Stone's sentence, which Bill Barr immediately did. The Sarah Croft, however, took a look at it from the legal angle for white-collar defense attorneys and grand jury target. Is data privacy a lifestyle? Jessica Wilburn explores in Navex Globals. Ethics and Compliance Matters blog. Compliance budgets are getting tighter. Matt Kelly and Tom Fox explore. What about Britain and France cooperation in the Airbus investigation? What does that mean for investigations of corruption in those countries going forward? Jacqueline Jaeger looks at game changes in compliance training, which makes compliance training more effective. Jay talks about his... Final article in a series on proactive monitoring. Are you worried about CCO liability? Matt Kelly explores some wishful thinking or wistful thinking about the FCPA enforcement going away and why board governance needs to change. All of these and more on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen. For this week in FCPA, episode 192 for the week ending Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2020. We won the World Series and you didn't, Jay, edition. Jay, uh, if you didn't know, Jim Crane uh, gave a press conference where he apologized to the world uh, for the Astros sign stealing by saying we won the World Series and you didn't. T.S. baby. It was one of the great tone deaf performances of all time. And for those who might wonder what the tone of the organization is or was going, what was or is going forward, uh, Jim Crane uh, channeled his inner Enron today. Uh, Fortunately, there were some more positive stories over the past week. So you want to just hop right into it? Yeah, I'm not sure if story number one uh, qualifies as more positive, but uh, it certainly got everybody riled up in the rule of law societies. So, uh, let us know uh, what kind of Twitter musings did the president have and how did that lead to departures at the Department of Justice? Well, uh, Donald Trump ordered his lapdog, Bill Barr, to change the proposed sentencing of Roger Stone. The four prosecutors in the case uh, resigned uh, from the case. One resigned from the Department of Justice based upon the political interference of the president and the um, acquiescence apparently, of the attorney general. Uh, But that's really not what we wanted to use this for, Jay, because uh, Sarah Croft, our good friend over at the Grand Jury Target, um, wrote uh, a really interesting blog post entitled, Is the DOJ Stuck with Its Positions in the Updated Roger Stone Sentencing Memo? And she is a defense lawyer, white-collar defense lawyer, uh, most generally, and she um, looked at it about uh, in a way, uh, or, or posing the question as in her title, how can uh, defense lawyers use this? 
And it was really interesting because the DOJ has taken a position uh, as, once again, ordered by the president um, that really is going to hurt them going forward because the position they have taken after having uh, proposed a, a sentence of nine years and then cut that back to three and a half was that <clears throat> the uh, sentencing guidelines, while, quote, technically applicable, end quote, shouldn't apply because they disproportionately escalate the defendant's sentencing exposure. Well, the problem with that argument, Jay, is the uh, that's what the Department of Justice uses all the time uh, in uh, bringing sentencing enhancements to a defendant's offense level. Uh, number of victims, identity of victims, sophistication of the crime, how much money was involved, and a whole bunch of other facts to recommend the court enhance a sentence. And so by claiming that uh, this was technically applicable, but it should not be done in the Stone case, it really opens up the Department of Justice uh, to, to critique by judges and used by defense lawyers in a wide variety of cases. So um the argument made by the department is really a defense argument that can be used by defense lawyers, uh, certainly going forward. Um, Sarah points out that under this uh, attorney general, it should be uh, really now standard that uh, defense lawyers can take the same argument posited by the DOJ or rather the attorney general. So a really interesting uh, article from Sarah Croft and certainly if you're a white-collar defense lawyer out there, you ought to take a look at her argument. And if you haven't used it in the past, uh, you should use it forward. Uh, excuse me, going forward. So um, the um, um, data privacy, Jay, uh, what is on Wilburn's mind? So uh, this comes to us from Navix Global's Ethics and Compliance Matters website. And uh, Jessica says that data privacy is not a law, but it's a lifestyle. And as we enter the early decade of the 2020s, there will be more than 100 countries with data privacy legislation in place, or rather in place. Along with international sprawl of privacy law in the United States, there are a number of similar but different state laws all in the offing. In data privacy law, change is the only constant. In 2020, change will define our existence as organizations operating in a world of heightened appreciation for an individual personally identified information, the PII. More than 100 countries currently have data privacy legislation in place. That also means that more than 40% of countries do not, but most likely will soon. In the United States, no federal standard is likely to emerge in the near future, meaning individual state laws will continue to proliferate. While GDPR Compliance is a continuous journey that isn't ending anytime soon. And the most significant changes we will see will likely come from ripple effects from the recently launched CCPA. Under the CCPA, California consumers may request what personal information is being collected and why for personal information to be deleted to obtain information about onward disclosures and the quote, selling unquote of their personal identifiable information and the categories of third party with whom their data is shared or who it was inquired. Um, We have two takeaways for organizations. First, effective data policy will not come from a policy or procedural change, but a lifestyle change. 
Cavalier Data Management no longer holds water. Organizations are expected to live and breathe privacy by design. Number one, you need to find and develop your data privacy people. Data privacy now needs to be embedded deeply and uniquely across organizations. And this starts with a uh, DPO integrating themselves into each processing activity. Jessica expects that we will see a growing trend in data privacy titles being hired in departments like engineering, marketing, and customer service. Privacy by design is best when those designing the programs and practices are not only functional experts, but also data experts. And number two, you need to master the full life cycle of PII. The real work in this new age of privacy law comes into the processing and fulfilling of data subject access requests. The challenge is going to be a continual hurdle for companies as we venture deeper into the area of heightened data privacy requirements. With your extended data privacy team developed and the full life cycle process of PII properly managed, delivery on effective data privacy will become second nature for your organization. So, Tom, next up, you have a story from Radical Compliance from the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly. Uh, What is Matt talking about this week? So, Jay, we go cool twice uh, in this episode with the first of two stories from, uh, as you correctly note, the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly. Uh, It's an article about a report from the law firm of Hogan Lovells, uh, which says that compliance department budgets and staffing are decreasing. Uh, It cites some statistics that show that since 2016, there's been basically a 50% drop in um, companies that have increased their compliance budgets, uh, increased by 50% or rather 100% of uh, companies that um, have lost uh, or or rather um, have not grown their compliance team. So um, I think there's lots of different reasons for this. Matt was, I think, uh, very concerned about this. I'm a little bit less concerned about this because I see this sort of as a, a natural uh, inflection point, Jay, of where the compliance profession is uh, vis-a-vis 2015, 2016, where a lot of companies were really ramping up their compliance. And uh, as technology becomes more important in uh, compliance, and, and indeed I wrote about uh, ComTech today, phrase I uh, coined for compliance and technology, I think compliance technology or ComTech will improve productivity of your compliance function, and it will allow you to enhance overall business process. And as you know, I posit will make you more profitable. So uh, whereas headcount may be down and overall budgets may be down, I I think we're seeing more efficient technology usage in Compliance J, more productive compliance because of technology, more uh, efficient business processes, and at the end of the day, more uh, or greater profitability, specifically because of technological solutions delivered in compliance. Nevertheless, a really interesting report. Matt and I took a deep dive into it in compliance into the weeds, and we've linked to both his blog post and our podcast on this, Jay. Great. So uh, next up, we've got something that's been in the news for the past couple of weeks. We're taking a look at how British, uh, how Britain and France cooperated in the Airbus investigation an enforcement action. And this comes to us by Branislav Hawk, writing in the Risk and Compliance Platform Europe. And it's entitled Airbus, How the UK and France Learned to Investigate 
and sanction international corruption. Airbus is yet another company that has resolved its anti-corruption out of court, but buying a good ethical standing is becoming more and more complex. After all, a time when the U.S. was the only country offering a settlement to a French company has passed and paying massive bribes in China to sell aircraft interests in many countries. Escaping prosecution is newly for sale in other countries as well, and the fact that France, the U.K., and the U.S., were able to sell Airbus at a $3 billion settlement shows that this is a lucrative business. Uh, He goes on to take a look at how in the past um, the FCPA has kind of wagged the global, uh, been the tail that wags the global dog of settlement. And now it appears that uh, the author takes a little bit of issue with both the UK and and France kowtowing to the U.S. administration, and goes on to say how they followed the U.S. rules uh, to get their declination uh, and to get their settlement. So uh, as many companies before, uh, the DPA indicates that Airbus investigators worked hard to identify a comprehensive compilation of red flag cases. Then Airbus suggested where to look on the menu and even help the regulators by designing technology to assist in the prioritization and identification of relevant documents. Getting to 30.7 million documents has been especially helpful as it would otherwise have taken years. And this is the point. Prosecutors need to cooperate and are willing to make a deal, less sanctions, no prosecution, perhaps they might not go after management. But before doing anything active, the United Kingdom and France and others had to start playing the game according to the U.S. rules. This is why policing is not only in the hands of the prosecutors. To the opposite, most investigations are done internally, and companies like Airbus invest hugely to run anti-corruption measures. This new era has just begun by subcontracting enforcement to the U.S. authorities is not the leading strategy. UK and France learned how to delegate their investigative work to corporations in a similar way as the U.S. authorities. And in effect, companies such as Airbus, Rolls-Royce, and SockGen are buying out-of-court settlements from multiple countries. So uh, uh, not not a very happy view from the other side of the pond. Uh, No, certainly certainly not. Uh, But uh, I'm going to give kudos and a shout-out to both French authorities, the PNF, and uh, Serious Fraud Office, and indeed the Department of Justice, because they split up and each uh, investigated thoroughly uh, Airbus taking a specific uh, set of subject matter expertise, and uh, literally billions of documents were reviewed. So lots of work done um, by the authorities and investigative authorities leading to the Airbus settlement. So we have some game changes in compliance training. Uh, what does our colleague Jacqueline Jager from Compliance Week have to say? So Jacqueline took a look at sort of the top practices in training, Jay, and I was extraordinarily pleased because she began with a movie produced by our good friend Mark Havner over at Resonant Productions uh, with the Altria Group uh, distribution company. Uh, her lead uh, lead article is about, or lead piece in the article is about, uh, headlines, uh, headlining filmmaking, 
where they took uh, sort of real life from the headlines and they made an antitrust training uh, video. But they um, and how Altria was able to use that going forward. Also, uh, she took a look at some of the other uh, training techniques that are currently uh, in vogue, gamification, using training and analytics, and virtual reality. So if you're interested in sort of cutting-edge tech components and innovations to training, uh, take a look at this article. Um, also, I'd go over and look at Resonate because uh, Jay and I both know Mark Havner quite well. Uh, they put together some literally Hollywood-quality productions that can be used uh, for your training. It can be incredibly powerful. Um, and uh, Jacqueline talks about how Altria uh, targets employees who have been with a company for some period of time, and they bring this in, uh, bring them in for this type of training, and find it to be a very powerful uh, and effective training. But the other uh, training techniques are also uh, quite uh, innovative. Uh, she named some of the other uh, compliance training companies that are involved in this training. So it will give you uh, a lot of good ideas uh, for your training going forward. Thanks, Tom. So this week in my Corporate Compliance Insight blog, I explore proactive monitoring, which demonstrates the benefits of using a third party to fulfill compliance mandates laid out by the DOJ and other regulators. Uh, In this five-part series, I've been looking back at some recent DOJ announcements over the past couple of years as well as the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. And uh, this brings me to my discussion of proactive monitoring, which is directly in the wheelhouse for every compliance program's three key prongs of prevent, detect, and remediate. It's interesting to note that former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, or Rosenstein, depending on how you want to say it, said in a keynote address in late November 2018, that money spent on an effective compliance program is, quote, money well spent, unquote, while the lack of such an investment is a, quote, missed opportunity, unquote. When you think about it, that sort of speaks volumes as to where the new guidance is all about to help companies take a serious look at their own compliance program. In a nutshell, it's proactive monitoring to avoid an imposed monitor. The memo and other DOJ announcement lay out a discrete roadmap for how organizations can avoid the imposition of a monitor. The independent monitor is conflict-free, performs a comprehensive assessment, and then helps lead the company through the recommended remediations. Equally important, the independent monitor does this over time. One of the strengths of a good monitor is assessing what a company is doing and saying to determine what's real. The proactive monitor does not come into an assignment with a preconceived connotation. There are no judgments or biases. It's truly a blank slate, and the words objective and professional come to mind. The final point is very much a business positive. The company itself does not have to recreate the wheel to assess itself, as these tools have already been created. All we need is an outside independent third party to come in and allow the company to continue to do its business, while the independent third party monitor is on the outside looking in to make sure it continues its operations. So while the memo may pretend less positions of monitors, the cost for putting your organization in a position where one is mandated by the government can be quite high. Finally, the memo and other DOJ announcements not only further articulate the DOJ's expectations, 
but clearly demonstrate how a company can move through the enforcement process to receive a full declination under the FCPA corporate enforcement program. So, Jay, uh, we have a second article from Matt Kelly and the coolest guy in compliance. And here he took a look at a New York State, or rather New York City Bar Association report warning that compliance officer liability continues to be a worrisome part of regulatory enforcement. And Matt, uh, I found correctly, um, looked at this with some skepticism because uh, I really don't see uh, compliance officer or CCO liability increasing except where either the CCO was in on the scam or really ignored uh, red flags that were basically in front of their face. Nevertheless, the report urged four steps for the regulators to draft formal guidance to explain the circumstances in which a compliance mm-hmm. officer might be subject to personal liability, offer greater details in enforcement action, risk alerts, speeches, or guidance of why regulators did or did not bring enforcement actions against compliance officers, create new channels of communication between compliance officers and regulators where agencies or rather where a compliance officer could call with questions and establish standing advisory committee to meet with regulators to talk about compliance issues, including liability. Um, there's, these are certainly good ideas, but as Matt, I think, as I said, correctly notes there, um, it's really not been, uh, I, uh, from where I sit, a large increase in compliance officer liability, except where appropriate. Nevertheless, uh, some good ideas from uh, the New York uh, City Bar Association on that. Uh, so next up, we have an article from the FCPA blog from Bill Steinman, who is a contributing editor. He's a senior partner at Steinman and Rogers, a boutique law firm in Washington, D.C., specializing in international anti-corruption compliance and investigation. And this piece is entitled, A Reprieve from Robust and Expansive FCPA Enforcement is Wishful Thinking. Last year, we saw more enforcement actions brought against individuals than ever, up to 34, depending on whose statistics you're using, and a record number of convictions secured after trial. The DOJ and SEC collectively imposed $2.8 $2.8 billion with a B in fines and penalties. Two of the 10 largest corporate resolutions of all times occurred in 2019, Ericsson and MTS, and another two corporate actions landed in the top 20, Walmart and Technic F&C. The real lesson is that the FCPA has once again shown that it's here to stay. It's also proven to be bipartisan three years into the Trump administration, that is being enforced in equal measure by both Republicans and Democratic administrations. 2019 also saw a number of remarkable trends. We continue to see the ascendancy of the SEC in corporate resolutions. The SEC in 2019 used the FCPA's internal controls provision to stake out some rather aggressive positions, positions that the author believes will be challenging for even the most reasonable company to satisfy. He wanted to briefly examine recent enforcement actions against Microsoft and Juniper Networks. In those actions, the SEC scrutinized situations in which companies offer discounts above their standard rates. It was the SEC asserted this was a violation of the internal controls provision not to confirm that 100% of an increased discount was passed along to a government end user. 
The Microsoft and Juniper network cases highlight another trend from 2019 that the SEC has increased scrutiny on TEPCO companies. Five out of the SEC's 13 corporate enforcement actions featured companies working in the tech sector. That's almost a 40% increase of all SEC enforcements. They've caught wind of the fact that many tech companies have focused primarily on revenue generation and market share growth and viewed compliance as an afterthought. He winds up his article talking about how 2019 also saw several landmark court decisions, especially uh, the Alstom SA case with Lawrence Hoskin, which we've spoken about uh, increasingly on this website. So Bill said it before, but longing for a reprieve from robust and expansive FCPA enforcement is simply wishful thinking. It is much more important now for companies and individuals to understand the statute's requirements and the way the FCPA enforcement continues to evolve. So, Jay, uh, Mike Volkoff took a look at corporate boards of directors in one of his blog posts this week. And Mike says that the old board governance model needs to change. And by the old board governance model, he means that the board's basically in positions to protect themselves through hiding behind the business judgment rule that directors cannot be liable for decisions um, unless they breach a known duty and that directors are protected from liability when they can rely on advice from senior management company counsel and other advisors. He really thinks a broad definition on um, corporate purpose now involves numerous objectives. And if you're aware of the business roundtable statement on the purpose of corporation, these will sound somewhat uh, familiar. Profits, competitive gains, attracting a productive workforce, avoiding and reducing environmental harms from operations, increasing prosperity to benefit community and communities where they are working, establish a reputation as an ethical and responsible corporate citizen, and that corporate boards and members have to acknowledge a new set of expectations from folks as diverse as shareholders, employees, customers, suppliers, communities, and government entities. It's going to require a more nimble board, a more focused board, a board that's actually going to roll their sleeves up and, and do some board work. And so it's, I thought, an interesting way to think about this change. We obviously started with the uh, business roundtable statement last summer that generated a lot of debate. Some of that you and I have had. We've had it on everything compliance. Mike and I have done it on Wyatt Duck. Matt and I have done it on uh, compliance into the weeds. And Mike's article really crystallizes many of the thoughts and com- uh, conversations that we have all had, Jay, about where um, boards need to move to meet many of the challenges of 2020 and beyond. So, Jay, in the month of February, I'm really focusing on the role of HR and compliance. And this week, uh, largely took a look at incentivized compensation or compensation as a way to help incentivize compliance. So on Monday, I looked at six core principles for compliance incentives. Tuesday was designing compensation to incentivize compliance. Wednesday, it was executive compensation and compliance incentives. Uh, Today, or rather Thursday, was sales incentives and compliance. And today, uh, Friday, I changed the focus a little bit to institutional justice and the fair process doctrine. So if you're interested in the role of HR, if you're interested in incentivizing compliance through compensation, 
be it direct compensation or indirect compensation, bonus variable compensation or other. This was really the week uh, for you. So uh, it's available now on its own iTunes channel, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. If you want to put them all together and binge out and listen, they're about uh, eight to nine minutes per episode. So they're easily digestible. And once again, I have three key takeaways each day that you can implement at little or no cost in your compliance program. So talking about easily digestible, uh, we had the Oscars on last Sunday night. We didn't get to do our uh, pre-voting check-in, but what say you about the Academy's decisions? Well, it seemed to me to be a little PC this year. Um, the um, I think they went out of their way to uh, award Parasite. I, I will say it was a good movie. I don't want to suggest it wasn't. I thought there were some stronger candidates there. I was extraordinarily pleased that Renee Zellweger won for Judy Garland. Um, that was one of the strongest individual performances I have seen in some time. Um, she stayed in character apparently during the whole shoot, so she must have been an emotional wreck when she came out. Um, but uh, she def- definitely channeled uh, Judy. And uh, it, it was painful in many ways to see, but I, I just can't say enough about her performance. Joaquin Phoenix in The Joker, uh, once again, the performance was just phenomenal. Uh, he uh, channeled The Joker as far as I was concerned. And the channeling, um, it, was about, it was a story of how the, uh, a regular, meek, mild-mannered uh, person became uh, not – uh, shoeshine boy becoming underdog, but a regular person becoming um, the Joker. And you really saw the complete mental breakdown that he had, which led him to becoming the Joker. And I thought they did it, Jay, in a way that, that, that did not glorify violence, uh, but explained the uh, the abyss that he found himself in, he couldn't or wouldn't get out of, and how that really drove uh, a level of institutional madness that made him the Joker. What say you? Yeah, I, I think uh, both those performances were great. I wish uh, Mr. Phoenix had somebody writing his uh, own remarks when he accepted the awards because those have been, they were a bit rambling at the Golden Globes and he continued on with his tradition. Uh, I agree with you that the uh, Oscars were strategically parceled out to make sure that most films were recognized. I guess the only person who really did not get any recognition was Martin Scorsese and his wonderful film, The Irishman. But I think his satisfaction has to be coming in the fact that he got the money together to make that movie and to see his vision uh, beyond Netflix. And um, I, I don't think there were any real surprises in the past. Uh, the Golden Globes is usually pretty good prognosticator of what's to come at the Academy and the Academy asserted their independence this year by picking parasite over 1917. But um, I think on the whole, it's uh, it's always good to get together and celebrate people's achievement. And uh, you know, those are my thoughts on the Oscar. Uh, also, Jay, I was, uh, was pleased Brad Pitt won. Uh, I thought he, uh, Really, really did a great job in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It was uh, a lot of fun and uh, a great movie as well. 
on behalf of Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and myself, Mr. Monitor, would like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 192, for the week ending February 14th, Valentine's Day. Make sure everybody bought those cards. And we are finishing the We Won the World Series edition. Damn it. Hope you have a happy holiday, and we will talk to you next week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the top compliance and ethics stories which caught our collective eyes. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.